Those of you who are new to our church this morning, what have we been doing this summer at Middletown Christian Church? We have been uh, walking through the Gospel of John. And this morning's message is the seventh message uh, this summer in John. You can go to our website, you can download our podcast to hear the other seven messages. But what we've been doing uh, during this series is we've been trying to look at John with fresh eyes. We've been looking at the history behind the gospel and the context and the circumstances of the gospel to see things that maybe we haven't seen before. Today in the eighth chapter, we're going to hear a story that you probably have heard before. Even if you're not a regular uh, church attender, you know something about this story. The story is very, very popular, very familiar. But I know the danger this morning I face in sharing the story because the moment I start to read the story, you're going to immediately go to the punchline. You're going to know the point of the story. And instead of using the sermon note page to take notes, you're going to start making your grocery list and checking off, hey, sermon, done that, know the point of this story. Well, I want to share it with you this morning that this story has so much history surrounding it that oftentimes we missed it because we're so familiar with it. Uh, the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery who is brought before Jesus and is accused of her sin in front of Jesus is one of the most highly charged emotional and dramatic scenes in the gospel. What I want to do this morning then is I want to tell you where the story took place to help you understand the story itself. This is where the story took place. This is a modern photograph of the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount for Jews and for Muslims and for Christians is considered to be one of the holiest places on the earth for Muslims, for Jews, and for Christians. On the site today, you will find uh, uh, the Dome of the Rock and another mosque where today Muslims go to worship. But in the first century, when Jesus was here, in the first century, this would have been a Jewish worship site. And on the site where you see that gold dome, most likely there would have been a place of worship called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was the, was the place where the high priest would enter to ask for the atonement of sins for the people. And in that room was the Ark of the Covenant. You may remember Indiana Jones, Raider of the Lost Ark. That's what was in that room. The Lost Ark, the Ark, Ten Commandments inside, Holy Sight. Near the Holy of Holies would have been an altar where animals would have been sacrificed by individuals coming and looking for the atonement of their sins. What you see down here at the bottom is the southern wall. And what Jesus would be doing is he would be walking from the Mount of Olives down the Kidron Valley, then up to the southern wall, and then he would enter through these gates where everybody entered. Today, if you were to go to this specific site, you would see that there's a stairway there that leads into the temple. This is important. Because every single person who would go to the temple in Jerusalem would all walk up these stairs. Today, these stairs have been excavated, 
and you can see the actual site where Jesus perhaps walked or would have walked, where the Pharisees would have walked, and where everyone who went to the temple to look for forgiveness would walk up these stairs. So in one sense, these stairs were kind of like the stairway to heaven. These stairs were kind of like the stairway to redemption, the stairway to reconciliation. So everybody would enter these steps and go into this building. So everybody in the story today, every one of them would have walked up through these steps and into the building itself. Now inside there was a great courtyard called the Courtyard of the Gentiles. And this was a loud, messy place. Imagine people bringing animals for sacrifice. Imagine the smell of the animals and human people all in there. Imagine going to Holiday World on the 4th of July, you know, packed with people, uncomfortable, sweaty like that. Three times a year there were these big pilgrimages where people were required to go to Jerusalem to worship and to offer offerings and sacrifices. And when this event takes place, it was called the Feast of Booths. All around the temple, people from all over the world would have gathered and were living in tents to remember the time when they wandered in the wilderness, to remember the goodness of God, how God provided bread and God provided water and God provided light and fire while they were in the wilderness. And then during the day, they would go into the temple and there they would remember and celebrate God's goodness to them. It was at this time when this story takes place. It says in chapter 8 then that Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. But early next morning, he was back again at the temple. He'd walked down the valley, up the steps, into the door. And a crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. Now, at this point in John's gospel, you need to understand, it is high drama. Everybody's watching Jesus. Some people have begun to turn against Jesus. Some of his own disciples have already fled him and are no longer following him because of his teachings. Other people were curious about him. Some had placed their trust in him. At this point, the religious establishment were plotting to kill him. It was high drama, emotionally packed scene. The temple itself was already packed full of people. And here was this controversial teacher walking in. Everybody's going to know, what's going to happen? The crowd are curious, wanting to see, and he sits down. As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. This was a highly orchestrated and planned lynching of Jesus. What they wanted to do was, in front of these big crowds, they wanted to put him to the test. They wanted to expose him as a false prophet. They wanted to divide the people against him. They wanted to turn the crowds against him. So what they had done is they, they had intentionally looked for a moment of high drama to pin him to the wall. Now you're wondering, it's early in the morning, where have they been all night with this particular woman? I'm not accusing themselves of being the one who was committing adultery with the woman, but obviously what was happened is they had been holding her in custody just for the right moment to trap Jesus, and then they put her in front of the crowd. Now, you know how awkward it is, uh, particularly if you're a new person walking into a new religious building you've never been before. Everybody have that experience? Ever go to a new church <clears throat> or to a religious service and you've never been there before? You feel out of place, everybody's looking at me, 
you know, hopefully they don't ask me to raise my hand. Hopefully they won't put a sticker on me that says guest. You know, hopefully my friends won't out me. Hopefully, you know, you know how awkward it is. Now imagine if you were to walk in here today and you were dragged into the building up to the altar and then I exposed your sins to those who have been gathered. I want you to just think about this for a moment, how this woman must have been feeling. She'd walked up those steps before seeking forgiveness, but this time she was being dragged into the temple by religious people, and she was being made a spectacle of, condemned and judged, already feeling bad about herself perhaps as a person. But now her life was on. And instead of going there to offer a sacrifice, she was going to be sacrificed because they didn't care about her or her circumstance. But they only cared about trapping Jesus. So it says in the story then as we read on, they said, teacher to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Now they're saying to Jesus, Jesus, remember where you are right now, right in this moment. Just right over here on the other side of the temple is where the Romans live. And you know the Romans forbid us from stoning people. And if you defy the Romans, well, you're going to be in trouble. But then you also know what the law says because just within a stone's stone's throw of where we're standing right now, there's the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, there's a box. And in that box are the Ten Commandments. And you know the number, you know the top two at least, Jesus. Everybody knows the top two. Don't kill and don't commit adultery. Exodus 20:14 says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, if you were Jesus, what would you do in this moment? Now, if I'd been there, I know what I might have done. I might have said, so why did you bother to drag her all the way up here? You know, the law says you could have just stoned her. Why didn't you just stone her where she was? You found her where she was. Why did you hold her in custody? Why are you waiting to this moment? Why are you trying to make a spectacle? Why are you dragging her up here? You think he could have said that. You know what he could have done? <laughs> he could have quoted Leviticus 20.10. He could have said, if a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, but both the man and the woman who have committed it or must be put to death. Where's the dude involved? It takes two to tango. He could have said that. I don't know why it is in the Bible that women always get the hard time in these circumstances. But where's the guy involved? He, he wasn't involved. You see, that's the funny thing about religious people. Sometimes religious people will use Scripture, manipulate Scripture to their own point of view to hurt and wound people. They don't care about people. They just care about making their point. They, they care about being right. They don't care about mercy. So at this moment, they think they got him. Jesus doesn't say any of these things. They think they've got him. He doesn't answer. He just, he just bends down as if he, and he starts to ride in the dirt, you know. Here's what it says. And they were trying to trap him, trying to get him to say something. And he just stooped down and they're right in the dirt. And they think, we got him now. And they kept demanding an answer. Can you imagine him down there in the dirt? Come on, Jesus, demanding. The Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He doesn't say anything. Because what is he doing? He's allowing them to expose the cruelty of their heart. Allowing them to expose themselves before the crowd. 
And then he said something. Oh, yeah, you want me to remember where I'm standing? You want me to remember what the law says? Let me remind you where you are standing. How many times have the men in this circle walked up these steps looking for forgiveness? How many times have you brought an animal to the altar and sacrificed it for your sins because you came in here guilty? How many of you have walked up these steps seeking forgiveness and then walked back down these steps forgiven and cleansed? All right, then, he says. All right, you know where you're standing. Let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And at that moment, I imagine it was complete silence. And all you could perhaps hear at that moment were the crying of the lambs being offered for the sacrifice of sins and the stones as they were dropped into the stand. Jesus still doesn't say anything. It's highly dramatic, highly charged moment. You can get the feeling for this. And then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. Now I wonder, what do you think he was writing? You know what? If you watch the Discovery Channel, you'll, you'll, you'll see all these things about Bible mysteries. Well, I was up all night reading ancient texts. I've been studying for days on end. I haven't slept or ate. I've fasted. I tried to, I've decided, nobody's answered this question for more than 2,000 years. What was he writing in the dust? And you know what? You're going to be first to hear, I've actually solved the riddle. I'm going to be famous. I'm going to write a book. I know what Jesus was writing in the dust. I think this is what he was writing. (laughs) I don't know, but I think, I don't care who you are, but I think that's funny. I don't know if he wrote that, but I would have wrote that. It takes one to know one, you know? That's, I don't know that he wrote that. But the truth is that oftentimes when we point out the weaknesses of other people, what are we doing? We're really pointing out the weaknesses of other people. And there's a great truth being said that when you point your finger at another person, you've got three fingers pointing right back at you. That oftentimes when we're pointing out the sins of another, it really does take one to know one. And then, that's just silly, isn't it? But it's true. And then it goes on in the story and it says, when the accusers heard this, they remembered where they were standing. He exposed their hearts. And they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. Why do you think it is that he points out that the oldest people were the first to walk away? Larry, you're the oldest person in this room. Why do you think? I mean, Larry, Larry's the, he says that he's had more time to sin than most people. That's what he said. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Takes one to know one. It says Jesus was left until only Jesus is left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Let me just point that out to you. All our accusers have left. And then here he is, Jesus and the woman, Jesus and the woman. Let me say this to you. Your sin, your shortcomings are between you and God. There's no one on this earth can put you on trial before God but God alone. No one. You don't need a priest to be forgiven and to confess your sins. You don't need a pastor to preside over your life. You don't need the rite or the ritual of a church but to stand face to face with Jesus and to seek his grace and forgiveness. 
And he looks at her and says, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? And she says, no, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. This is so beautiful because she has no idea. She has no idea about what's to take place. The see where they're sitting, see where they're standing in this big, beautiful complex and down over, right over the horizon. Lambs are being slayed for the sins of the world. And at some point, as John will say, Jesus himself will be crucified for this woman's adultery and for her sin. And that Jesus, as the Son of God, the gospel is that instead of coming into the world to condemn the world and to condemn sinners, he came instead to the world to die for sinners. And the irony of that whole story is the whole story is as Christian tradition says, that the only one in that story who had never sinned was Jesus, and the only one in that story who wasn't holding a stone was Jesus. The only one. And that woman, and after that moment, would walk down those steps, forgiven, having looked into the pure eyes of God. Some of you came here today and you think, I've got to get my life all straightened up. I've got to get myself all cleaned up before I go before God. You've been taught your whole life that God is quick to condemn and judge. You had a parent, you had a teacher, you had a pastor, you had a church, someone teaching you that, that when you sin, you break the law of God. And you've been made to feel guilty and shame. Some of you, you need to hear this today, that when, when you sin, you don't break the law of God, you break the heart of God because God can see how it breaks you. And you need to know that's what you needed to hear today, that you don't have to stay away from God until you clean yourself up. You don't have to stay away from God until you're, until you're perfect, until you're beautiful, until you get it all straightened up in your life because He doesn't condemn you. He welcomes you the same way that Jesus welcomed the prodigal who was running home because he had wasted the family inheritance and the father runs out and greets him without accusing him and welcomes him with open arms back to the family. Neither does he condemn you. But then the second part, go and sin no more. Sometimes I would say at Middletown Christian Church we're really good at the grace part, we're not so good at the sin part, but this other part is just as important because it, re it would reflect no compassion on Jesus' part to not encourage this woman to live a different life. Say, I forgive you, you're forgiven, you're clean, you're ready to go. And not ask her to make some changes in her life because he can see how it's hurting her. You see, in Jesus saying this, he's not condemning her to go and sin no more. But instead, he's urging her to leave the life behind where she's hurting herself. You see, with all sin, whatever you call sin, whatever it is, however you define it, it comes prepackaged with its own penalty. That's why the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. It's not that God has to punish us for what we do. It's that we punish ourselves with the things we do to ourselves, how we hurt ourselves. Because sin does kill. Sin kills our conscience. Sin kills our reputation. Sin kills our self-respect. Sin kills relationships. Adultery breaks up marriages and families. And the reason Jesus urges her to go and sin no more is because he doesn't want her to hurt herself or the people around her anymore. You see, and this is, this is the thing that I, I just 
want to lay this out. This is an interesting point. Let me ask you, how do you do that? Go and sin no more. I'm not doing very well at that. I know Larry's not, and I'm not. But, you know, you hear Jesus say, go, go, sin no more. Well, I'm gonna, I walk out, and I'm going to do that. Right? I'm going to go sin no more. And as soon as I get at home, you know, first words out of my mouth, not so good. I mean, some of you are going to get in a terrible argument on the way home in the car. You were fighting on the way to church. Go and sin no more. How do we do that? This is what's interesting. I've never connected these verses, but if you go in and read verse 12, Jesus says this. He says, he spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. You know what that means? Basically means that we're not just left on our own to, to, to change our life. He gives us his teachings. He gives us his word. And when you accept Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, the, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside you, to teach you, to instruct you, to help you. And he becomes your light. He, he is bread. He is light. He is truth. He is life. And he says, if you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. He will lead you. Look at this picture. I end right here. Today it's interesting. If you go back to Jerusalem, if you were to walk up the steps, you would see the entrance. So the temple has been stoned over. You can't enter anymore. No longer can you walk through these gates, through these doors. It's a place of, of religious conflict and difficulty that represents so much of the world. Religion gets in the way of between us and God so much in the world. Conflict, differing people believing different things, us against them and all this kind of stuff. And all, Think about all the things that block people from God. The way the church presents God in the world becomes a barrier to people meeting God because we represent God incorrectly. You look at this way, the way to redemption has been blocked. But what I want to point out to you that no longer do you have to walk up a set of stairs into a temple. That Jesus is our stairway. Jesus is our bridge. And through Jesus, through Jesus, what has been blocked off has been opened to you. And you are free to live the life because he is the way and the truth and the life. Isn't God good? Amen. Amen. What a great story. <laughs> Will you pray with me? I want to ask you this question. Where in your life right now do you need to hear these words? I don't condemn you. Where do you need to hear that? And at this altar today, before you walk out of this building, what is it in your life? What sin is it in your life? What is it in your life that you need to leave behind that's continuing to wound you, your family, and your friends? What is it? What is it that you continue to do that, and you continue to repeat that continues to hurt you? What do you need to leave at the altar today before you leave? Just take a moment and think about that.
What do you need to leave behind? You don't have to be afraid. He doesn't condemn you. You need to know that when someone is willing to die for you, you never have to wonder where you stand with him. He is pure grace. He is pure love. Today, would you not open your heart to Jesus as your Savior?